This is Purple Radio On Demand. Welcome back to In Discussion With. On today's show, we have got legendary local football commentator, Nick Barnes. Nick, welcome to the show. Hello. So, you're commentator of a Sunderland Football Club. How is that at the moment? It's, it's a little bit of a free-fall at the moment, isn't it? it? It's more than a little bit of a free-fall. It's not a nice place to be at the moment. It's um, a, a, a dark place, if you like, and um, no immediate signs of things getting much better um it's the rapidity of the the fall if you like it's only a couple of years ago Sunderland were playing in the premier league and we were dining at the top table if you like we were at the manchester cities manchester united's Tottenham's, etc of this world and now we're at the uh, the gillingham's the accrington stanley's with no disrespect to those football clubs but it's um a very very um sharp decline if you like in the, the club's fortunes both on and off the pitch and Things seem to be getting worse at the moment, not getting better. Um, they were on the cusp last year of winning promotion back to the championship. It, it didn't happen. And I think there was a lot of hope that it would happen this season. They would have the concerted push to get it right this season. And in fact, it's gone the other way. It's, it's disintegrated. And now it's fragmented into a sort of, um, a, a sort of cauldron of uh, toxicity and hostility and... Uh, already calls for the new manager who's only been in post for a matter of you know a month or two to go uh, and that's just indicative of the you know the sorry state of the football club and you you followed Sunderland for for quite some time in, in commentary what's it been like for you to oversee this decline because it has been quite a, a sharp and fast decline it, firstly from the Premier League yeah, then it has. out I mean, of the championship it, it's it's strange because I've covered them since 2003 so you know, going into a 17th year covering them. And when I first started covering Sunderland, I mean, I came over from covering Newcastle United in the, in you know, Europe in top sort of four or five of the Premier League. And Sunderland had actually just got relegated. And um, so my first season covering Sunderland, they were in what was then Division One, now the Championship. But there was always that sort of, there was never that um, bleak outlook then, even though they'd been relegated with, you know, that that, that point, lowest points total and, things did look ostensibly quite bleak. There was still quite a lot of optimism that, that the team could bounce back up into the Premier League. And even on scant resources then with Mick McCarthy and, and Bob Murray was the then owner, they, they did go back up, you know, two seasons later, only for a season, but it came down again. And then Roy Keane arrived. But there was never a feeling, I think, as there is now, of such, such sort of abject forlornness that things have gone so badly wrong that that, that that people couldn't fans couldn't foresee a time when they'd be back in the Premier League and there was always that sort of um, yo-yo sort of sort of uh, label that was attached to the football club then um, and of course when Roy Keane took them back up then that set off the, the 10 years even though it was largely 10 years of struggle it was still 10 years in the Premier League with some sort of miraculous finishes to the season when they managed to stay up this time round though because the sort of fragmentation, the disintegration of the club in the championship was so marked, it was so bad, I think people really did start to lose hope. And with you know, relegation to League One, then that was a you know definitively a sign that 
the club was in big trouble and, and there's, no, there's no question they are. I mean, in, in many senses, it's very, very difficult from the position that they're in now with the ownership that's, you know, currently at the club to foresee a time when Sunderland will be back in the Premier League. The, the gulf now is so great, um, not only in terms of where Sunderland are on the football pitch, but where they are financially, that it's, you know, it would take a, an incredible optimist to say that Sunderland would be back in the Premier League within probably 10 years. I and mean, even that might be, a, you know, a very overly optimistic sort of hope that they, they could achieve that. And you've like, you've sat on the on the terraces for that whole time up, up right at the, the top of the Stadium of Light in the, in the press boxes. Was there a specific turning point for you that marked the, the kind of downfall of, of Sunderland over well, it, recent years? In some ways, I mean, it, I always remember we were at Ipswich um, in the championship season and Simon Grayson was in charge and you, you had a sense that it wasn't going well. He hadn't had a great start to the season. He hadn't had, a, hadn't had a terrible start to the season, but then they lost at Ipswich 5-2 and it was an awful match and there was a real sense of the team having lost its way and the club losing its way and that evening, and it was and it was a September evening. It was a wet, horrible, miserable evening. A miserable result, and I just got the feeling then that this was a team that was probably going to get relegated. It just didn't look right. It didn't feel right. You had that sort of um, intuitive feeling that something was badly wrong, and then that season really did start to unravel. And um, I, but I, you know, if you if you if you like, you said to me, is there a specific turning point? Then maybe that was the night. Maybe that night it switched at Portman Road was the night. But I think the warning signs really have been there for four or five years. Um, funnily enough, I bumped into Ellis Short, you know, the club's previous owner this weekend on the way back from Gillingham. And, you know, he said, with hindsight, you know, of course, it's the perfect art. He said, with hindsight, when Steve Bruce was in charge, was he premature in sacking him when he did in that season? He says, you could, you could argue he was. He said, mm. oh, maybe I should have stuck with him, even if we'd been relegated then. Maybe we would have been better off getting relegated at that stage, having a stronger chance, more money in the in the bank to come back than sitting it out for another five years and flirting with relegation all over that time. And then gradually that watching the club in that five years starting to unravel. Mm. Um, and he's probably right. I, you know, I think I've had lots of discussions with, with fans and people about that and, and thinking back, you know, that some of them may well have been better off getting relegated five years earlier than they were when you know Ellis Short was still happy to put money into the club when you know he, he would have been happier I think to review the way the club was being run and they'd have come back probably stronger for it um, but it was left to fester if you like and and by Ellis Short's own admission he put the wrong people in charge and um, now the club is effectively paying paying the price for that and of course we've seen it's been well documented that there's been the the documentary on, on Netflix, obviously, and you you were involved with that to, to some extent. Do you think that Sunderland is a warning for some other clubs that are operating in similar positions? I, I, without without question, I mean, I think it's it's the it, it is the speed with which this has happened in terms of the fall from grace, if you like. But I think you know the underlying message there is you know you take in this area alone. You look at Newcastle United and the, the Newcastle fans. You know, they want Mike Ashley, the owner, out. And, and for understandable reasons, I can completely um, concede, you know, why and understand why everybody at Newcastle wants Mike Ashley gone. Um, because he's a, he's, if you like, he's a, 
a custodian, but one that has got no real passion for the football club or because understands. I the, suppose it's it's like you were like you were saying. It's almost the the feeling with with some Newcastle fans is that Mike Ashley is just comfortable in that lower mid table bracket yeah, and, and, and doesn't really have. And he's there looking at the bank balance, and you know that ticks over. And as someone said recently, if they're doing okay. In January, he won't put any money in because he doesn't need to because they're not going to get relegated. They're still, yeah. you know, taking off the cream, if you like, um, financially from being in the Premier League. Now, that's, you know, where the danger lies is that fans call for Mike Ashley to go. And then what happens is, you you know, if, if it goes wrong and someone comes in and hasn't got the best intentions at heart or, or manages it in a completely different way and then it, it starts to go wrong um, as it did at Sunderland. It, it, it's the, it can go wrong very, very quickly. And I think that's something that even probably um, an, another example is Aston Villa who uh, miraculously managed to weather it and they've come through it. But they too had this sort of um, implosion, if you like, with the wrong owner, the, the overspend. I mean, they they lost a fortune, and they were lucky to find new owners, and and they got the appointment right, you know, to get them back up into the Premier League. But it's a warning sign, I think. You know, Aston Villa, Sunderland, and you only have to go back over the you know the last few years, your Leeds, your Portsmouths, Sheffield Wednesdays at this world. Who, I mean, Leeds is a prime example again. Big spenders playing in Champions League you know, and suddenly find themselves three years in League One. So, and very, very quickly, and only now do they look like they're probably going back up after how many years is that? Um, 13, 14 years. So, you know, it can, it, it's, it's it's astonishing at the speed with which things can fall apart. Um, and whilst I understand that, you know, at Newcastle, they don't want Mike Ashley there, I think it's almost a case of careful what you wish for. Um, mm. Because... You know, you look at the league table this weekend and look at Newcastle 10th in the Premier League and you look at Sunderland 11th in League One and, you know, that in a way tells its own story. It is quite a stark contrast, isn't it? I'm interested in how you kind of reacted, maybe emotionally, mentally to that. Obviously, you've, you've got this intimate relationship with the club that you've been covering for the last 10, 15 years and to be in contact with with managers, with owners, with fans, with players for such a long time and then to see all of that kind of capitulate very, very quickly. How is that for you? It's, it's um, I mean, uh, on one level, you know, I've got a professional relationship with the football club. That's my job. It's my day, you know, day-to-day job. I mean, it is, it is 24-7. You can never really escape it, um, especially, I think, the profile that myself and Gary Bennett have now with the football club, you know, is not, you know, certainly this area you know, most people, if we're out and about, someone will know us. And, mm. um, so you, you and I, that, that's fine. I don't, I, I've got no issue with that. So you can't, you know, you're, you're emotionally attached, both professionally and in your sort of day to day life. I mean, so, um, and it's, it's heartbreaking in a way because, you, you know, you're so closely attached to a lot of people at the football club. I've seen a lot of people lose their jobs. A lot of people move on and even, you know, not just the managers, staff behind the scenes um, and it's it, it's you know players come and go you can you know you live with that that's the profession but I think you know when you start to see people who've been at the club 25 30 years and they, they're leaving and fans who've been going for 30 years 40 years you know religiously sort of wanting to chuck in the towel and 
have had enough, then that's that's heartbreaking because you know fundamentally it's a you know fantastic football club and it's a it's a um, a crucial part of the community as well. I mean, it's amazing how big a role the football club plays within the sort of day to day life of the of the city and um, and not just of the city. You know, there are supporters who, who I know live all around the world um, who live and breathe Sunderland and. Uh, you, you know, it's difficult sometimes to comprehend just how much is intertwined into their lives and how much it means to, to them. I mean, it's quite, you know, difficult in a lot of ways because I'm not from Sunderland and I'm not, I didn't grow up a Sunderland fan to perhaps really understand just how much it means to people. But I can, I can see it. You know, I do, uh, I mean, my partner's been a Sunderland season ticket holder for, 30 years, you know, and, and she lives and breathes it. And I can, uh, and so I understand it. I, can, I know where that, that emotion, that emotional tug comes from. And to, to watch that being broken up, you know, it, it, it's hard. I mean, it's not, it's not easy because there's a lot of anger. There's a lot of anger and it's um, sometimes directed at the wrong people and it's sometimes um, expressed badly. But you know that's that's where this football club is at the minute, and, mm. and that's a sort of an, uh, a reflection of you know just how far it's fallen. One thing that I've noticed recently, certainly since the Sunderland Till I Die documentary came out, is that there is quite a lot of animosity towards maybe coaching staff, managers. Um, do you think one did it ever? Would it ever have gone right for Chris Coleman at Sunderland? Um, and two, I know that you potentially had a little bit of a run-in with Jack Ross, maybe asked a couple of questions that didn't sit right with him. How do you deal with that as as somebody who is close to the club as um, you are? The run-ins with Jack Ross, when, when, you know, that's part and parcel. I mean, we are, I've no issue with Jack. I still speak to Jack. Mm. Um, and, you know, for me, as the commentator reporter, that those run-ins were an indication, if you like, that things weren't right. And if that's where you draw your sort of intuition that things aren't going well you, you had a sense then that the pressure he was under and things clearly weren't right and um and he would be the first to admit you know now with hindsight looking back yes those moments those incidents those times things were difficult and there were things going on and um it, it's i mean going back to the documentary i mean it's interesting how i mean there's a second series coming out next year early next year spring next year um, and I've said to said to Jack Ross, who was uncomfortable about them filming the documentary, mm. although more comfortable once he'd watched the first series. And, he, and, and as a consequence of watching the first series, he allowed the film crew a little bit more access. They're not, you know, he said, never would they set foot in his house and never would they set foot in the dressing room, which is fair enough. But he did <laughs> allow them a little bit more access um, because he understood that, you know, what they were trying to do. And he, and he conceded, you know, the first series was very good. I had its flaws, but it was still, you know, a good watch and it was a good, it did portray the football club well and the passion yeah. for the football club. So, um, and I, you know, what came out of that series, a couple of things came out. One is that people reappraised their thoughts about the manager and the coaching staff and the way the club was going. But they also reappraised their attitude towards Martin Bain, the chief executive, who until the airing of the documentary was actually uh, subject to you know some horrific abuse and some you know he really couldn't set foot in the city if you like without 
basically being driven out of town. Yeah, I couldn't actually believe how well he came and, across and in so that documentary. Came, I, I know people still say he came, he's come across, he comes across a little bit oily, a little bit sort of smarmy, but actually doesn't come out of it badly. And no. actually a lot of people um, reappraised, I think, their attitude towards Martin Bain. And Martin Bain, I mean, he didn't like me calling him the hatchet man at the time, but that's what he effectively had been brought in to do. Mm. And as it's turned out, he was, I mean, hatchet man is actually a very mild term for <laughs> what he was was trying to achieve and ultimately e even he as the you know person he was portrayed to be didn't have the willpower or the, the, the he wasn't minded to be as ruthless as he probably needed to be and he knew he needed to be but couldn't bring himself to do that which is what the current owners came in and did and now are paying the price for, for doing that because they are now on the back, you know, they're on the back foot because mm. they're subject to the same hostility now that Martin Bain and, and Sunderland were under before the first series was shown. Now, the second series when it is aired, I think, well, I think for all the people who wanted Jack Ross out, I think what will happen with the second series is there will be a major reappraisal of Jack Ross's time at the club and people will realise just what he had to deal with in trying to mm. manage not just the football team, but effectively managing the football club as well. Um, and so he was, you know, he was doing, doing one with managing the football team with effectively one, two hands tied behind his back. So was so was Jack Ross in any way responsible for finances or no? But he, said he, he like his that? issue was he was never given a budget, for instance. To, okay. I mean, he, he as a manager, and I mean, you talk to other managers, and Gary Bennett and I had this conversation because Bennett was a manager at Darlington and. And, and he says, you know, as a football manager, what you like to do is be work. You, you like to give them a budget. Mm. Let's, for argument, say say your budget is two hundred and fifty thousand pounds a season. He says, absolutely. I mean, this was Jack's argument. He said, like, if you if you said to me, I've got two hundred and fifty thousand pounds, I know that I can spend three thousand pounds a week on my striker. And when I've done that and got that striker in, that leaves me thousand pounds a week to get a left back, fifteen hundred pound a week to get a right back, whatever. Yeah. But I can manage the resources. I know exactly what I'm dealing with. But the way he was having to work was um, almost sort of hand to mouth every you know few weeks going to the Tony Coat and Richard Hill saying, well, we need this, we need that. What can I, what can I have? Well, uh, well, you can have this. Well, what's this? Well, uh, uh, you know, we, we'll try and find you a striker. But you know, it, it, was, it was very not much a, not a, um, a, a, a sort of formal or, or very structured way of working and I think Jack Ross found that very very difficult on top of that the signing of Will Grigg and the, and the way that unfolded sort of undermined mm. Jack Ross and it undermined um, the football club really ultimately so that that was a you know fun, that was a fundamental problem so Grigg wasn't a player that Jack Ross well, Jack, Jack Ross wanted Grigg but not at any price right um, and you know what what unfolded over that January transfer window was that it, it, when it did happen, it was going to be at a significant, hefty price, way over what he's worth. And clearly now, um, when you look at what Grigg has delivered, nowhere near worth you know the, the money that Sunderland or Stuart Donald spent on Will Grigg. But in signing Grigg, it effectively handicapped Jack Ross because he's then got a player for three, four million pounds that he feels he has to play. Um, to justify the fee, mm. um, then other clubs look at Sunderland and see them as big spenders. And in fact, 
they weren't. They were still effectively getting players in on freeze and non-contract, blah, blah, blah. And so it, it is, um, and I think it's coming home to roost now with the performances and, and the, the problem that Phil Parkinson's having in trying to uh, gel this team is that, you know, he had a, a mishmash of um, League One players and a few players who probably got the ability, well, definitely got the ability to play higher up but haven't got the mentality to maintain any sort of consistency. And it's a, it's a potpourri of um, sort of, that's not working because, you know, one thing that Jack Ross did do was meld together a, a disparate group, if you like, of, mm. of players of limited or, or, you know, in some cases limited ability, in other cases of fantastic ability, pulled them together and, and gave them sort of a, an identity, identity and a team spirit, which now is just completely evaporated. And I think it's interesting that you know the the kind of coming together of different players from, from different styles, different managerial uh, tactics and, and whatnot. I, I saw something a few weeks ago, I think it was Sunderland's team when they got relegated and the amount of recognisable faces there mm. compared to the, the team that I think was lining up that weekend. And I think it was only we, really Will Grigg that, that was kind of well, your household name. Possibly. I mean, I, I mean Aidan McGeady's the other one that would stand yeah. out. Um, but you're right. I mean, you, you know, it's a strange... I think for some, for a lot of Sunderland fans, it's a, it, suddenly they're sort of waking up on a Saturday and looking at the opposition team and thinking, I've never heard of them, never heard of and any of the players. How, how many I, times I, have, have you played Gillingham this season? Well, it feels it, like about three 12. Already, yeah, three already, <laughs> still got one more to come. But, um, and, you know, suddenly a generation of Sunderland fans who maybe started going to watch Sunderland in the Premier League when they were 10, 11 years old, and now they're in their early 20s. and. Mm all they've seen is Premier League football suddenly confronted with, you know, Gillingham's of this world and, uh, uh, with no disrespect to Gillingham, but how many of their players would any of them ever heard of? Probably none. And, and, you know, it's, and, you know, to go from that glorious world of, you know, FIFA and household names to journeyman lower league footballers, uh, it, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a huge sort of chasm. Yeah, I noticed that myself as a Newcastle fan when we were relegated into the Championship the last time um, and, and I had a season ticket at that point. And to really, to go from, from playing Man United, Man City to then having Burton Albion and you're signing Daryl Murphy and you're not spending loads of money on, on big marquee signings. Yeah. I think your, your top signing is Matt Ritchie. I mean, which obviously is, has been a, proven to be a fantastic buy for Newcastle, but it does seem very strange con- compared to what could have been in, in the Premier League. But it, you see, that's the, that's, the, that's the big thing. Newcastle did it right because they brought players in that would get them straight out. I mm. mean, that was shrewd um, management in terms of, you know, you get a Dwight Gale in, you know, will score goals in the Championship. Not necessarily going to be a, a prolific goal scorer in the, in the Premier League, but you, you do know that in bringing in your Richies, your Gales, your Murphys, um, and they did do it, you know, they were very astute, Newcastle, to, to build mm. a team to get specifically to get them back out in the first season. Because as Sunderland are finding out now, the longer you stay in any given division, the harder it is to get out of it. Um, and there's, there's no guarantee Sunderland are now going to get out of League One after two seasons. Could well be three seasons. And when you've spent three seasons in League One, and your finances have been ripped up, ripped up so badly 
there's a very strong chance you could find yourself four or five seasons in League One until you, you know, you can restore some sort of, you know, balance and start building again. So um, it, it, it's, it, you know, that, that it all comes down to decision making, I suppose, ultimately. And Newcastle made the right decisions when they got relegated. Um, Aston Villa eventually, you know, they did make the right decisions. Sunderland made the wrong decisions that they, you know, they'd made the wrong decisions over four or five years in, in paying big wages, long contracts to players that, that, that really were the wrong players and, um, and now they're paying the price for it. Do, do you think that Sunderland will be in the Premier League in the next 10 years? No. For the reason that? I just don't think, I think it's going to take them a year or two to get back out of League One. I think it's going to take them a good few years to consolidate in the championship. And they've got to hope that someone comes in with money to, to mm. as a, you know, a sort of benefactor that will bankroll the rebuilding in the championship. Um, and the championship is a, a heavily, hugely competitive league now. I mean, the number of big clubs with the ability to spend now, you know, look how cutthroat it is, mm. you know, at the top of the table. Any one of eight clubs could potentially, although there's maybe a little bit of a breakaway there, um, the top two could could go up, um, and Sunderland have, have got to find themselves and find their feet again in that in that mix coming from from nowhere. You know, it's taken Leeds that, that it's taken Leeds how many years from promotion from League One, um, probably six seven years to yeah find themselves on the brink, and they're still not there. And you'd hope, you know, you'd think this is probably the season they are going to do it, but it's taken, it's been a hard, long, costly process mm. for them to do that. And yeah, we've, we've kind of, we've kind of talked about the, the, the depressing part of, of your, of your job, obviously what witnessing this magnificent free fall, uh, there, there have been a lot of, of moments as well of, of real like joy and, and uplifting and some actually like quite funny moments as well. I'm thinking we've recently just had the um, 10 year anniversary of the Darren Bent beach ball goal at Liverpool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, were you working on that yes, game? Yes, yeah, I was there then. C yeah, could you yeah. just take us back to well, that I moment? Because nobody, nobody, at that moment in time, nobody realised it was the beach ball. I mean, that's an extraordinary thing. <laughs> you know, to all intents and purposes, it, it, you know, it, we didn't realise the beach ball had been, had played such a significant part in the game. But I mean, I think Rafa was in charge of Liverpool that yeah. day as well, um, but it, but it was you you couldn't make that sort of story up. I mean, it's one of those <laughs> extraordinary events. I mean, it's almost like now we have all these debates about VAR and how extraordinary you know VAR at, at, at the beginning of the season. I think everybody felt VAR would be oh they're great you know and, and yeah it's turned out to be the most sort of um, controversial and mm. and the, the the incidents it's thrown up nobody would have imagined in a million years and so it, it was almost like the beach ball incident that day you know Sunderland playing Liverpool it's great atmosphere and ultimately the, the greatest irony was it was a Liverpool fan that threw the beach ball on and <laughs> it was a Liverpool and, press and, to Liverpool beach ball. and so it was it, 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 it was it, it was one of those stories that you you know will will live on in time because it was so off the wall, you know, it, it's sort of, um, it's almost, I said to someone the other day, I was talking to a colleague at uh, Gillingham, and I said, if you'd said to a television 
producer 18 months ago, right? We've got, I've got, I'm going to pitch you this idea about a football club. It's a, it's going to be a, a um, um, sort of soap opera, doc, uh, not a documentary. <laughs> And it, and it involves a football club getting relegated and sacking two or three managers um, and unravelling and everything goes disastrously wrong. And so, um, They'd look at you and say, well, no, that's too extreme. That would never happen. And then you turn around, well, actually, it has just happened. That is Sunderland Football Club. Um, and it just so happens, you know, someone has made the film. And it, it, I, mean, I think Netflix 4 World 73 will regret that they haven't been filming this season because mm. for a third season they would have had you know gold dust in terms of something to watch on television and, and that's what that's what some, something that Sunderland have delivered over the last decade not just the beach ball incident the Gus Poyet Paolo Di Canio sort of finishes to the season which were just unreal absolutely bizarre as well the appointment of Paolo Di Canio to pluck him totally from Swindon and put him into the Premier League and to achieve I mean there's no argument that you know um, they may have stayed up under Martin O'Neill, they may not have done, but mm. it was the manner in which De Canio achieved it, you know, that win at Newcastle. And, um, and that's how, from, from, from those sort of games, legends are written, aren't they? But, um, you know, the Gus Poyet, again, doing exactly the same thing, Sam Allardyce coming in and the effect he had on the club. So, there, you know, there have been, you know, good, there have been good times, the, the League Cup final, League Cup run, um, even you know last season, getting to Wembley mm. twice, um, you know, but, but they're isolated. You know, they're 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 in isolation. I, and I sometimes wonder if you're a Sunderland fan, would you rather have had? Would you rather still be in the Premier League and floating about in the lower half of the Premier League and not have had any of that, than had all of that and be where they are now? I mean, it's very very difficult because. Um, it's the old argument about Newcastle. Would you rather be in the Premier League and not winning cups, or would you rather be in the Championship and win the FA Cup? It's a sort of, you know, it's it's difficult because they're they're two clubs which are huge football clubs which have monumentally underachieved over the last mm. fifty years. Alex Sunderland's recent like big cup um, foray was was the League Cup. Was that 2013? 2014, yeah. 14. yeah, and and obviously I remember watching that game and. It was quite a spectacular start for Sunderland. Well, it was. Well. A, it, I mean, let, when you look back on that final, nobody, I think, expected to win it because it was Manchester yeah. City at their prime, um, and nobody. And you look back, actually, somewhat fondly at it in a way because, in no way, manner or you know, did, did, did Sunderland disgrace themselves in the afternoon? They took the lead, they outplayed Manchester City in the first half, um, and then they were undone by the wonder goals. You know, the third was a sort of you know late late. Like consolation for Man City in a sense, um, which perhaps flattered them a bit. But the, the dead, you know, the significant two goals were unbelievable, and so there was, you know, no way Sunderland yeah. uh, didn't show up or didn't make a fist of it. They did, and they were just beaten by a clearly superior team at the time. I mean, they were, you know, it was it really was David and Goliath stuff. But you know, the whole cup run and the, the final and, and was, was you know magnificent, really. I'm I'm interested to know as well, just on a personal like commentator's point of view, is there a kind of message or theme or anything that you want to kind of portray when you sit down in that seat and you put your headphones on and you you lean towards the microphone at the start of a game? Is there any kind of mood that you want to specifically 
bring no, you just, to light you, at that no, moment? You, you, you basically, you're reflecting, you know, you in the build-up, you sort of cover the mood and the current, what's happening um, contemporaneously, if you like. I think what you do as soon as, the ball, as soon as the game kicks off, you are in the moment. And it's a reflection then of, the, you, you want to call the game as honestly as you possibly can. Um, and people are very quick, that, you know, pick, people are very good and listeners are very good at quickly picking up on, on how the game is going. And, um, you know, when it's going well, they're, they're very mindful of it. And when it's going poorly, you're very mindful of it. Um, but I think, you know, the, the key thing is honesty. You can't pull the wool over anybody's eyes. There's no point trying to... Occasionally, you know, we get criticised sometimes when the team's playing badly for being too negative. But, you know, mm. we're only being negative because the football is. You know, you're, you can only report <laughs> what you're watching on the pitch. Yeah. If the football's not good, well, why, why lie? There's no point trying to pretend it's any better than it is. Um, and then you're being dishonest and you're not, you're not really doing your job you're not delivering you know what most football fans you know genuinely want to hear you know want to know what their how, how their football team is doing and there's no question at the moment you know most fans when they're listening are, are getting driven up the wall not liking what they're hearing but you know the old adage is don't shoot the messenger we, we're just we're, we're yeah. the eyes and ears of what's happening in front of us for those that can't get there um, I'm just thinking as well is there a particular favourite moment of, of commentary that you've ever kind of been involved with. We were, last night, I think we were uh, recording our sports show um, in the main studio and, and the the lads played back a piece of commentary that they did over the um, college rugby final. Absolutely fantastic uh, with the atmosphere and the, the energy and everything. Is there, is there a game or, or a moment that you look back and you think, yeah, I did a really, really good job with the commentary there. Um, I'm always hypercritical of the commentary because I, I listen back and think, mm, that was, I didn't like that, I should have done that better. Um, I mean, there are stand, there are the games that stand, I mean, I, you know, going back over the years, there are moments, you know, when when Roy Keane was at the club, where or when, I remember Bolo Zenden scoring against Tottenham, mm. the goals in the derbies, the, the, the witness, Steve Bruce winning at Chelsea 3-0. And, so there are, there are, Standout moments, standout games. Um, but you know, going back over the years, I mean, how many? I mean, I've not missed. I get, I've missed one game in the last twelve years or something. Wow. I mean, you and so you start adding up how many games, and, <laughs> and certainly over the last two years, it's not something because it's almost like you think you're going to treble figures in the season. But um, you, you, you sort of struggle in some cases to remember some games and. You know, we often talk in the office or we talk games about, oh, do you remember this match or that match? And you think, you know, I cannot remember that to save my life, you know. And, and yet I was there and I commentated on it. I mean, even, you know, you can suddenly, suddenly pluck things out of the air. Mark Poon scoring with a header at Derby County when Roy Keane was there and things like that. So occasionally think, you know, memories do come back. But they, they, they're, it, it's irrational in the way that they come back because they, they come back at the most... <laughs> bizarre moments if you like when you're not expecting oh this sort of distant memory of something yeah. rears its head um, because it's such a it's a constant in a way because you know that as soon as one game's finished you're going to the next um, and you know the circumstances every season and every week are so different I mean someone said to me people say to me isn't your job boring and I said well no it's not because you don't know from one week to the next from one game to the next what's going to happen Yes, it's totally, utterly unpredictable. Um, really, I mean, yes, you can 
sort of try and debate what you think is going to happen. Well, then you do that. And for instance, like last season, going into the game against Coventry at Stadium Light, the debate, the build-up would have been about, yeah, this is going to be tight, maybe one goal in it. Well, it was. Nobody expected nine goals. So, <laughs> it, it's so you know, yeah. you, you, so that's the, that's the job. It's to totally, utterly unpredictable. And I always say to people about Sunderland, it's, it's never dull even when it's dull because <laughs> there's always something happening. Is there a particular memorable goal that kind of sticks with you for just particularly the one that I'm thinking of is perhaps Jermaine Defoe's volley in the in the time we are done. Well there's that one but I mean I think Barini scored what to my mind was a better one in the derby as well um, at the Stadium of Light and then I, I remember David Vaughan's at um, St James's Park but there's straight there are, there are certain I mean I remember one of the one of the best derbies bizarrely was when um, Sunderland were in the Premier League having been promoted with Mick McCarthy and they lost 3-2 at St James's mm. Park but Stephen Elliott nearly got an equaliser when he smashed one from 30 yards and it hit the bar um, and it was a real ding dong of a derby and it was a, it was a, it was a I, I, would people say it was a classic I don't know but it, it still to my mind was a fantastic game of football it was end to end and it, and it could have ended for either side with victory um, so there, you know I think Bolo's end and goal against Tottenham was a, you know, an absolute worldie you know and so you, you, you so if you remember Kieran, Kieran Richardson's free kick against Newcastle, yeah, Derby. Um, so you know that, that I mean that I have been blessed over the years in seeing a lot of a Carlos Edwards' goal against Burnley. You know when they won promotion, <laughs> and two weeks before that he'd done it at Southampton. Mm. So you know I have seen a lot of spectacular. Daryl Murphy scored one against Wigan from almost on the halfway line. So they you know those they yeah, start yeah, to come yeah. back. You start to remember. So there's been a lot. I mean there've been a lot of world-class goals and um, you know I've been blessed to, to, to commentate and watch those and I suppose it's it's great to talk about these memories and I've got with me here your kind of notebook from from commentary and it's great to have a look through and and to chart those memories in the way that you do that for me this is kind of a little bit awe-inspiring to be holding this book I hope you don't mind me saying no, not um, but it's something that I kind of you, you you post it online and stuff the, the week before and and you pay a lot of attention to, to the detail that goes into your notes. Um, there's the club badges that you that you draw from scratch, the kits, um, the form table, which is all color coordinated, and, and the the lineup that you that you expect to face. Um, when did you start doing this? Is this something that you've always done in your um, commentary? I've always kept. I think all commentators keep notes, and it's a, everyone's yeah. got their own um, method of, of note taking and how they present it during the match. I mean, I started doing, keeping notebooks for the season, probably when I was back at um, Newcastle and started to formulate the sort of template for what I, for, that I use now um, with team, the opposition on one page, then the match day note on the other page. And then it's slowly morphed into, um, you know, photocopying the crest and putting that on the page and then, uh, I just oh well I'll give a go one day to draw the crest. And so, of course, you forget when well, you you draw it once, and then someone said, "Well, you've done it once now. You've got to do everything. You've got to do it all the time now." If, you're going to, if the integrity yeah. of the the notebook is going to be held, it's, <laughs> you've got to do it for every game. So yeah, yeah. Admittedly, once you've done the crest, you can photocopy it after that. And you know, James Hunter on the Chronicle always laughs and says, "Oh, well, that's not that's moral. That's immoral because 
you're not drawing it. Well, it's like a print from an original piece of work. It's still my work. Yeah. Um, and so then that it's become um, a sort of totemic, if you like, of what I do. You know, and, and, and people do actually people say, well, why do you put it on online? Why do you put you know the pictures of the game on Facebook and Twitter of the pages on? Because people actually do enjoy looking at them and and, mm. and actually also um y- you know as one fan pointed out they're actually quite a sort of um useful tool or an aid memoir if you like if you're listening on the radio and if you're that way minded you can actually refer to the notes yourself listening if you're unsure about who's playing or you know what's happening on the radio i mean it's sometimes a useful sort of tool um for someone who can sort of bring it up and say oh actually yeah, look, you keep mentioning jack fuller saying Gillingham the other night, well, who is Jack? Well, the notes are there. If you, I've posted them online. If you don't know who he is, have a look and you can find out yourself. Yeah, it is It is a spectacular, spectacular notebook. I'm just having a little bit of a flick through now. It's interesting that you draw all of the all of the badges. Is there is there one particular badge that you kind of despise Which having to come around? Coventry is a difficult one. Um, Blackpools is... Difficult and it's intricate, but I was actually very pleased with it. It mm. took a long time to do it, but um, strangely, sometimes the, the the crests that look the hardest or you think will be the hardest are often the easiest. And it's this it's a, a crazy crest like Balkan Wanderers, which looks quite simple, that mm. actually can be quite difficult because the lines you've got to get the lines absolutely right, um, and you know you can. You can hide a lot of mistakes in a big crest with lots of coats of arms and everything else. But if you make a mistake in a simple crest, it's glaringly obvious. So sometimes they're, they're harder to draw than the, the more intricate crests. And I'm, I'm just looking now at the, at the Wickham Wanderers um, page from this season on, on October the 19th. You, the, you've got a, a signature from Phil Parkinson. Here. Yeah. Um, is that something that you get? Yeah, I did, to did start. I mean, I actually said to the managers, I mean, sort of, half in jest but actually it's probably quite significant I always say to them I always ask the manager to sign the book when they first arrive because they might not be there very long <laughs> which is, as it's turned out it's been uh, quite prescient because um, I mean Jack Ross is I think the first manager I've had to actually sign two books <laughs> because he actually managed to last a season um, but yes going back through uh, back I mean I think the first manager that signed it was probably but Roy Keane, Roy never signed it. I never asked Roy. And I think going back to sort of around that sort of time, Steve Bruce onwards, the manager's always, it's become a sort of custom, if you like, for when mm. the manager first arrives to sign the matchbook. What do you make of Steve Bruce at Newcastle United at the moment? Obviously, well, there was a lot of criticism for, for the man for taking the job. Um, and you've, you've worked I, closely I, I, with so him in I, the past. I, mean, I was obviously asked the question right at the start, well, yeah. what will Steve Bruce bring to to Newcastle. I'm actually glad now, sitting here talking to you, that I can sort of uh, back up what I said then because mm. the, the, you know, I'm, I'm making these bold statements when I was first appointed <laughs> and thinking in six months' time I might be sitting here with egg on my face. But I did say at the time I thought he, he would do them, do a good job. I thought he would actually um, do what he's done, basically. Um, he did it at Sunderland. And I think if you give Steve Bruce the tools... He will do. He will do well for you. I mean, he did at Sunderland when, when he had the when he had Darren Bent, Asmarjan, Nicholas Bentner, Danny Welbeck. Um, he he basically put together a good 
team, strong 11, Bolo Zenden, Seb Larsen, um, Nedim Nurin, uh, Anton Ferdinand, so on and so on. He actually formed, we got, got a good 11 mm. together. Now, it wasn't his fault. He, he was basically had the rug pulled from underneath him and telling Darren Bent. And then that's the, the point at which that started to unravel. Now, uh, you know, I, I would argue that's not so much, the results after that aren't so much a case of Steve Bruce not being able to manage. It was more a case of he was having the tools uh, taken away from him and, and not letting him manage. But I think at Newcastle, with the players that he's got there um, and knowing him as a person, knowing, I, I just genuinely thought, I mean, I said, you know, when asked where would they finish, where would Newcastle finish this season, I'd, I'd have no hesitation in saying they'll finish quite comfortably mid-table. Yeah. And, and add to that, I think they will, and there's very strong potential of a good cup run. Now, they've been blessed, Newcastle, having the draw they've had for the third round. Mm. But that could be the foundation, and because Steve will embrace the, the FA Cup. He's been to the final with Hull. Um, he, 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 it's something I think he's mindful of that Newcastle fans want silverware and they're not going to win the Premier League. They're probably going to be fine in terms of you know staying in the Premier League. So I think this time round, Newcastle fans may actually enjoy a decent cut run. That, that's very interesting. And it's something that has kind of been a bone of contention in recent years in Newcastle's history. Um, I'm interested to know what your thoughts are having covered Newcastle and now covering Sunderland, whether you see kind of differences in, in the way in which both clubs operate. Obviously, we've, we've seen recently the, the, the downfall of, of Sunderland, but in the Premier League, was there any differences that you could yeah, notice? There were, I mean, there were. I mean, they were very... I mean, uh, they are both fantastic clubs. I mean, don't get me wrong, they, 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 but they are both very different. Mm. Um, if I had to sort of sum it up in, you know, briefly, I would say Newcastle felt very corporate, whereas right. Sunderland always felt, has always felt very community. It's, it, you know, there's a, a quite a big difference in the way that they, um, for instance, at Newcastle, you, you had very little contact with the hierarchy, if you like. Right. You were very unlikely to bump into, you know, you had sort of a, a distant relationship with Freddie Shepard, Freddie Fletcher and, and the hierarchy, um, and you know, you saw them about, and they were very good to the, to the media. Don't get me wrong, um, but even you know, when I, I wasn't there when Mike Ashley arrived, but I know from what people tell me, you know, now it's even more yeah. distant the relationship between the two. Whereas at Sunderland, it's always been, you know, always the, the owners, whoever it might have been, Bob Murray, Ellis Short. I mean, the very fact that saying bumped into Ellis Short at the weekend and could stand <laughs> and have a conversation with him at King's Cross. Mm -hmm just shows you that the, the differences in the relationship between people at the club and the, the, the fans and the press. So there, there, there was distinctly two very different, you felt more comfortable in one sense covering Sunderland because you felt part of a, right. I mean, it might be a bit glib to say part of the family, whereas at Newcastle you always felt you were part of the institution, if you mm. like. Um, and, and so there is a, there is a, a, you know, a difference between the two. But I think the one thing that, that, that sort of gels them together is the fact that they are two, and when I mentioned this earlier, they're two massive football clubs who have monumentally underachieved. And both yeah. the models that have been in charge have not delivered, you know, and, and that is something, an accusation that can be 
levelled at the owners of both clubs and at which Ellis Short, for instance, will put his hand up and uh, uh, accept responsibility for that and um, won't hide from it, doesn't pretend that he didn't make mistakes and that ultimately the buck stopped at his door. Now, I'm not so sure that Mike Ashley would put his hand up and admit culpability Although recently, I think he's been a little bit more honest in, in, in sort of mm. accepting that perhaps he is. But um, yeah, both clubs, you know, their owners over the years, and you and, and it, there's been a reappraisal, if you like, of both Freddie Shepherd and Bob Murray at both clubs, because when you look mm. back at what Newcastle achieved under Freddie Shepherd um, and bringing Bobby Robson in, and having those sort of glory years under Bobby Robson and previously under Kevin Keegan, yeah, you know, you can see that you know, with the best one in the world, they did try and get it right. And Bob Murray tried to get it right with Peter Reid and, and those years, but both fell agonisingly short of, mm. um, of achieving anything. The the overarching theme when you when you talk about Sunderland, I feel, is this sense of community. And, and you've mentioned that quite a lot. And I think for me, the epitome of the community of Sunderland was everything that kind of went on with Bradley Lowry in the, in the, the last few years. Obviously, for, for you, covering covering Sunderland so closely, it must have been a particularly sad moment for you, the, the it, whole it, it, kind well, of situation. Well, it's all those, when you get into those situations, it is, and it's very difficult because um, it, it, these things gather their own momentum, and we're, we're seeing yeah. it again now, and it's, it's, it's desperately sad. Roker Report, one of the fan fanzines, fan sites, has organised um, a... Go funding for the soup kitchen, the community soup kitchen, yeah. and food bank in Sunderland. Now, you know, you sit back and with one hat, you're saying that they shouldn't have to do that. Why are we in a situation that the soup kitchen, or why are we in a situation there isn't? It, it, there's a, there is a soup kitchen and a food bank that shouldn't be there. But the other side of the coin is the way that the fans have come together to raise money for it, and the profile that the soup kitchens had is unbelievable. And so. Roke Report and you know the lads that run that are to be you know applauded for that because that is um, you know a very significant sign of when the football club and its fans get together and do things right they do it well and they do it properly and that has been you know a very very marked sort of achievement by the fans and they're very good at that and um, you know Bradley Lowry the food bank soup kitchen. Going back over the years, you know, there have been plenty of instances where the fans, I mean, even the trips to Wembley where the fans have come together, mm. you know, it's you know, notorious, isn't it? Trafalgar Square <laughs> and Covent Garden. Yeah. Um, now, you know, th- those instances, you know, are a reflection of the people of the city and um, and that is, makes it all the, it makes it the, all the harder for people to accept where the football club is now. Um, and and what the fans are having to, you know, what they're going through, what they're being put through, when they sort of probably owed more um, by the club. And and really quickly, just to just to wrap us up today, I've got just a couple of, of questions, just just a couple of quick fire questions. Uh, you might need to to think a little bit. Uh, the, the first one is the the best goal that you've ever seen as as a either Sunderland Newcastle or just as a football fan. Crumbs. Um, I, to be honest, one of the, one of the best would would off the top of my head would probably be Carlos Edwards' goal against Burnley at the Stadium of Light when it, uh, they sealed promotion back to the Premier League. Mm. Who is the best player that you have ever commentated a game 
over. Well, you, uh, you see, I can pick what you, you have to go to, to players of the opposition as well. Yeah, um, absolutely. And in games I've covered, I mean, I find it hard on the couple of occasions I did see him playing at the top of his ability was Eden Hazard. Mm. was remarkable. I mean, it was one night he single-handedly played for Chelsea against Sunderland. And he, <laughs> he virtually won the game on his own. It was, it, was, it was just the perfect performance from Hazard. I mean, of course, I've watched the Ronaldos and whoever from over the years at all those other, you know, all those clubs in the Premier League. But um, when Hazard, I mean, I'm, go, I'm, I'm going back to the Arsenal team of the, the 90s. I mean, Thierry Henry, Dennis Ber- mm. Burkamp. Watching Dennis Burkamp play was phenomenal, player. Un- unbelievable. Um, so, but I think you know, I'm probably being disingenuous in only picking out one. But Hazard for me was when I, when he was playing well was fantastic. Who's the most interesting character that you've interviewed post match? Uh, well, it's not necessarily post match. Most interesting. Well, the most interesting character for me. Well, two: uh, Nicholas Bentner and Kenwin <laughs> Jones. I remember. I Nicholas had a feeling Nicholas, you'd say Bentner. Nicholas Bentner, was who, who I got on really well with. And one day I was interviewing him and um, I was chatting to him and said to him, well, Nicholas, you know, you are, for want of a better word. And I had that sort of ice chill brain moment when I couldn't think of the right word. And I went, for want of a better word, Nicholas, you're arrogant. And he looked at me and I was thinking, oh, God, what did I say? <laughs> and he just looked at me and went, yes, I know I am. You have to be arrogant to be a striker. And <laughs> I embraced that. Oh, great, fine. Um, and there was Kenwin Jones when we were at Blackburn once at half time mm. and it um, hadn't been a great first half and clearly at half time Roy Keane said something to players and I said to Kenwin I said Kenwin after game off the record what did uh, Roy say to you at half time he just looked at me and went ah this is not telling you you saw snakes <laughs> fine okay <laughs> well, so there was two standout moments for the but Ken was actually great he was very laid back it was mm. interesting to interview Kenwin. I used to enjoy interviewing Myron Nosworthy as well. It was another chilled, <laughs> laid-back character. Um, I uh, one of my the one player I actually always really enjoyed interviewing was Bolo Zenden. Yeah, really bright, really communicative, very erudite. Speaks four or five languages. Wow, um, is uh, is a really genuinely nice guy, and. Uh, always had time for Bolo and when Bolo left and I've only seen him on a couple of occasions since always made a point of coming over and having a chat saying hello mm. um, and I so I think if I had to pick out one player and say that was the one player that over my career is really stood out as being an all-round consummate professional with Bolo's ending and what about managers who's the manager that you've enjoyed talking to the most um, well, Martin O'Neill was always um, we had fantastic ties with Martin before match in our pre-match press conference we'd often sit down for an hour with Martin and some of the stories he's, he, he told over his time were brilliant absolutely brilliant really nice guy um, Steve Bruce got on really really well with again he's he is actually a genuinely really nice guy he does seem like a really um, personable guy old school football manager but absolutely salt of the earth Steve Bruce Martin O'Neill and um, I could not leave out Roy Keane who is mm. absolutely brilliant um, to deal with he was just again like I said about Bolo's end and the consummate professional Roy was absolutely nailed on brilliant really good to deal with actually off the record was very very funny <laughs> very dry but very droll but very very funny 
and um, I think I all the press that covered those those years, all the fans of Sunderland would love Roy Keane to come back. I don't think it's a good thing. You never come back. I think it's a yeah. bad thing to do. But without hesitation, I think everybody would have Roy Keane back. He was so good to deal with. And finally, your predictions. Where do you think Sunderland will finish this year? Well, I, we were asked this at the beginning of the season at work and I went on record saying I thought Newcastle would be fine, they'll finish mid-table and then I went to Sunderland uh, and now I'm going to look absolutely, uh, I'm a total idiot because I said they'd finish an automatic promotion place. Mm. There is no way on earth they're going to do that, I think, this season. Now, not, not the way they're playing, not the way the state that the football club's in, the team's in. Um, I'm, I think they will, they might, it, it, the next few weeks is, is going to be interesting. I mean, one thing is whether Phil Parkinson keeps his job. Um, another is what they do in January. I mean, ironically, with all that, however bad they are at the moment, there's suddenly four or five points off the playoffs. So it's yeah. not inconceivable they can scrape into them. But I think they will they will end up in the playoffs. But I'm not convinced they're a good enough team to win the playoff final. Do you think they'll get to the, the final again? I, I'm not even year? sure. I'm not even... At the moment, I'm not even convinced they would make it to the final. I think the teams in the top six at the moment are way and above better than Sunderland mm. by by quite a stretch at the moment. And that's quite a lot of ground. There might not be a significant amount of points between them, but there is a significant difference in how they look as football teams and how they look as potentially promotion teams. And Sunderland at the moment do not look like a promotion team. Mm. Well, that's, that's fantastic. It's been absolutely fascinating uh, chatting with you again to know you a little bit better and I'm sure everybody listening will will have agreed with that just just very finally what do you think is is next for you where, where would you like to to go if let's say the commentary is not working out what's next what would be well, next I, for you? I'm, I'm so I think I'm I think me and Benno, uh, Benno and I are inextricably linked to Sunderland <laughs> I, I actually think we are sort of um we're joined at the hip, and I think both of us and the club are joined at the hip as well. I mean, whilst the BBC still has or still gets the rights to cover them, we'll still be doing it. I mean, I think that's the bottom line. I mean, I enjoy it. We both enjoy it. I mean, we're not enjoying it at the moment, clearly, but um, <laughs> because times are difficult. But um, we we love the club. We love what we're doing, and um, we embrace that. And I think, you know, I don't see us not doing it for the foreseeable future. And we can only hope that a corner will get turned at some point. And it'd be nice to be part of that and mm. watch them rebuild again. Wow. Anyway, thank you very much, Nick, Pleasure. For, for, for joining me. Where can people listening find you? Well, basically uh, BBC Newcastle, but um, that's also, we our commentaries are broadcast by the club on their website on the match day as well. And I think there's a fee for that, but um, so that's, that's where, we are. I mean, that's where the commentaries are. So brilliant. And if and if they want to look at some of the images from well, the, from yeah, the notebook, I'm, is that I'm, on your I'm on Twitter? Yeah, at Tweed underscore Barnsey. Um, so that's where I post the uh, the match book every pre match. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Nick. And thank you all for tuning in and listening to In Discussion with. I've been Joshua Nickel, and you've been listening to In Discussion with Nick Barnes. 
Purple Radio Podcasts. Thanks for downloading this Purple Radio podcast. For more great content and to listen live, head to purpleradio.co.uk.